Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast is more 90s than sharing a flat with Martin Clunes and Neil Morrissey. That show was great, wasn't it? My name's Ash Rose, ready again for another slice of the decade that changed football forever. And I know it's been a couple of weeks. Yes, we were going to do a couple of shows around the FA Cup finals and the playoff finals. Unfortunately, though, we had a few technical problems with, with switch producers and things like that that just haven't quite worked out in our favour. Uh, and a couple of guests as well in terms of timings and things like that. Because we always want to get the best guests for the best themes for these shows. And it just hasn't quite worked out as well. So a Apologies that we've been a bit missing in action, but we are back once again. And we've got a double dose of AK90's action this week, but I'll tell you about that a bit more in a second. Thank you for downloading, though. Is this your first time? You're in for a real treat as we talk about a subject that many wanted to talk about uh, when we've been starting these shows since August, actually. Um, so, And if it's you, you're here as a subscriber, welcome back. Let's get ready. Let's celebrate the summer of 1996 with our Euro 96-themed podcast yes um, before we get into that though uh, we have done the rest of the tournaments so far this season so if you want to go back on itunes or on soundcloud and listen to uh, the, the pod we did on italian 90 euro 92 which is called the forgotten tournament and world cup 98 all fantastic shows uh, go back and give them a listen um, as well because they're all brilliant but um, somehow they pale in comparison to, to euro 96 not necessarily for me um i love euro 96 and we'll talk in detail about it over the next two nights um, but also a big fan, as I've said many times on this, of USA 94 and even Italia 90. But in terms of European Championships, I think 96 is probably the best one ever, um, in, in my opinion. And it, it's funny, isn't it? This, the summer of 1996 is just looked upon so fondly by those who were a certain age and lived around it. Because it, it wasn't just the football. The football was great. And, and we'll get on to that. Um, England were great, but the, you know the championships were on home soil. It made it feel like our tournament football came home, obviously. But the summer of '96 as well. Everything else just around it just felt amazing. It felt like it was sunny every day. It probably wasn't knowing the English weather, but it just felt like it was the hottest summer ever. The music was immense. I mean, you're talking about an era that was Britpop at its properly biggest height. You know, the Oasis and Blur rivalry. Then all the other bands that surrounded them, like Spaced and Cast and Suede and people like that. The Charlatans, the Supernaturals. Music was such a cool. It was just cool Britannia, wasn't it, at that point? Even the Spice Girls. I mean, 96 was the Spice Girls that really hit. Wannabe came out. You know, Two Could Play That Game as well, but probably Brown. Songs like that. Really, just that summer, just escalated in euro 96 and which is why that this podcast was split into two basically because so many people wanted to talk about it because it was just such a tournament that we held in high regard of course it, it meant that england did well that helped england you know we reached the semi-finals i'm not spoiling anything there everyone who listens to this i imagine knows what happened in euro 96 and just wants to relive it like we were over the next two nights it was just a summer that it it's hard to put into words i mean the one thing i always remember as well this is a story from from my youth as i as i was growing up during euro 96 it was after the the spain game the england spain game which they won on penalties um i went down i lived in uh, plumstead at the time but near welling which is sort of southeast london kent borders and i went down there after there with my parents uh, i think we were going to get some dinner after the game because i think it the game was a uh, afternoon kickoff and there's two pubs at the top of Welling High Street, well, there was at the time. Uh, one called the Moon and Sixpence, which is now a Tesco's, and until I moved, took a lot of my money. Um, and the other one, oh, I forget the name of it now, is it the Plough? Possibly. Anyway, these two pubs 
never got on. You know, there was like a, a pub sort of rivalry that went on between the two of them, a few scuffles and things like that. And not that I ever, I was too young for, to ever get involved in it. I just knew of it and have since known of it through friends and things, people who lived in the area. But on that day, that afternoon, I drove down Welling High Street. I was like, I was out on my sunroof in my uh, Euro 96 English shirt, that brilliant English shirt with that random bluey turquoise trimming to it. And these two pubs were just mixing. Welling High Street was like a, a party. Everyone was in the road. Everyone, there was no trouble. Everyone had a smile on their face, beer in their hand, celebrating the fact that we'd just knocked out Spain on penalties. And it, it was just a feel-good factor about that summer that it, it can't be described unless you kind of lived through it. It was absolutely amazing. And I can't wait to look back upon it with our guests, not just tonight and tomorrow night, uh, where we'll go through and dissect each game, each moment. I can talk about Davos Suka as much as I like. He's one of my favourite players of all time. So we'll get into all that. So in just a second, we'll meet our guests. But before I do, of course, let me just remind you how you can keep in touch with us. We're on Twitter and on Facebook at AK90s. And this week especially, why don't you get in touch? I've, I've said it earlier in the week on Twitter, but send us anything Euro 96 related. So whatever you've got in your locker, it be programmes or tickets, the brilliant Euro 96 holograms from Kellogg's, the sticker collections, the coin collections, the little cars, anything Anything that's got Goliath on it, the mascot, which we'll talk about. Anything that's got Euro 96 and that brilliant logo that from the tournament, which you remember the blue kind of football that had lines in between it. Anything you've got, put it on Twitter. Um, I know the guys from MCFC Shirts put on the, the full set of the Corinthian figures um, earlier in the week. Fantastic to see those boxed as well. Brilliant. I, I was a little bit jealous about that. She actually went on eBay afterwards to see how much a boxed version of those figures would cost. I've got a few, most of them in my office, but a boxed version, wow. Amazing. Well done, guys. So anyway, you've got to stick it on Twitter and we'll retweet and comment as accordingly um, if you want to listen to any of the previous shows as I mentioned before we are on iTunes subscribe there or on SoundCloud or on the website at ak90s.co.uk and if you're on there especially this week let's get nostalgic drop us a little like a little review and a five star rating that would be brilliant well that's meet our guest tonight then who will be chatting Euro 96 yes we have reached that point and we've got three people specially chosen to talk about that subject firstly someone who's no stranger to this show he's been on a few times now a freelance writer across Merseyside uh, Mr Richard Buxton how you doing? I'm very good with yourself. I'm very well thank you looking forward to looking back at this brilliant summer uh, joining him uh, I think it's his second time and somebody who's had a pretty good season as a Leicester fan uh, author of a brilliant book as well called From the Back Page to the Front Room all about football and media fantastic but if you can get that a read it is Roger Dominghetti did I get that right Rog? That's right, yes. Thank you. How are you doing? Thanks. I'm all right, thank you. Still basking in the glory of Leicester's uh, win. I bet, I bet. I bet you'll be doing that all summer as well. And lastly, uh, join us as well, a man who's literally written the book on the Euro 96, uh, a fantastic read called When Football Comes Home, to check that out. I'll put it on Twitter later. Mr Michael Gibbons, how you doing, Mike? Very good. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, before we uh, talk that brilliant tournament, then there's a, here's a few things that happened this week in the 90s. Um, on the 7th of June uh, 1993, you might have seen it on the Twitter feed this morning, Nigel Clough 
joined Liverpool uh, from Nottingham Forest. Uh, two years later, Les Ferdinand sadly left my beloved QPR to, to Newcastle. And then in 1998, Bri- uh, Michael, no, Brian, sorry, Brian Loudrop left Rangers for Chelsea in three big transfers all on the same day in different years and 90s there. On the 8th of June 1996, Euro 96 kicks off itself with England's 1-1 draw with Switzerland. You might remember, simply read as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. On the same day in 1995, Bruce Rioch became the Arsenal manager on the 8th of June. On the 9th of June, 1993, USA famously beat England 2-0 in a friendly. I think one of the headlines was Yanks and Planks, if I remember rightly. Um, on the 9th of June, 1998, Marcel Desailly signs for Chelsea for £4.6 million. On the 10th of June, 1998, Scotland lose the opening World Cup game with Brazil. I think Tommy Boyd scored an own goal in that one. On the 10th of June, 1997, England win the Tunwa tournament in France despite losing the last game to Brazil. And on the 11th of June, uh, 1994, num- squad num- names and numbers were allowed for the first time ahead of the new Premier League season. But we're not talking Premier League, we are talking Euro 96. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I usually ask the guys here... For their footballing CVs. Uh, these guys have done a few anyway, but we're going to kind of switch it up with a Euro 96 themed kind of CV at the moment. So let's start with our regular Rich. Um, I asked you when, before we come on the show, your favourite moment of Euro 96. So we'll probably talk about it again, but just in briefly, what was your favourite moment? Well, it's got to be the Zerm this year, hasn't it? It's, it's, I mean, that was such an iconic celebration and, you know, it came against a backdrop of, of condemnation from the British press about uh, England's ill-fated trip to Hong Kong, and it was almost in typical English style. It was almost, well, what are you going to do now? We've, you know, beat Scotland, and the, the scene of Gaza having the uh, the water bottle squirt into his mouth. It was, it was a brilliant moment, wasn't it? In terms of being an England fan. Yeah, it was. I'm sure we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, Roger, how about yourself? Your favourite moment of Euro '96? Um, there was, there's so many to choose from, but I think my favourite was um, Shearer's second goal against Holland. So the one where um, Sheringham sort of, well, Gascoigne pulls it back to Sheringham, who who sort of faints to shoot, passes it to um, Shearer, who sort of slams it into the top corner. Because that was the moment, I think, more than any other, you sort of thought, well, actually, maybe we can can kind of go on and win this. Um, it was sort of the, the sort of cherry on the top of that performance. I know there were other goals, but... Um, it was it was a brilliant performance and that was a great goal. Great, great goal, yes. And uh, Michael, what about you? I mean, you've obviously relived a lot of them writing the book, but your favourite moment from Euro '96? Um, I'd probably say the the minute between um, McAllister rocketing his penalty at Seaman's elbow, <laughs> uh, and then the sixty second between that to Gascoigne sort of scoring that amazing goal. Uh, um, I think the whole kind of tournament flipped on that one minute, really. I mean, yeah. the perception of it, the way we remember it now, it just sort of changed the whole mood of the whole tournament, I think. Mm. I'll go back down the line because the other question asked the guys was favourite player as well. So, Richard, your your favourite, not necessarily the best player of the tournament, but your favourite player of the tournament? Alan Shearer. Yeah. No question of a doubt. I mean, he was, he was brilliant even before he was in 96. You look at the, the, the numbers he recorded for Blackburn, you know, 30-odd goals a season. It was phenomenal numbers and you know, as, as we mentioned before about the, the Holland goal I mean that was that was sheer that was peak of things and you know supposed to buy a great cast no brainer for who the best player was for me yeah Rog for you I was I was going to say Shearer as well but I think as that's already sort of been challenging I'll, I'll pick Davos Sucre I just yes. thought his performance against the Danes was was excellent and it was sort of a a precursor to what would come two years later um, and particularly his chip over Schmeichel so yeah, I totally agree. Davosuko, I said in my intro to the actual show, one of my favourite players um, of all time, really. I just loved him, and that was where I first come across him at Euro 96. And then lastly, Mike, how about for you? Are you going to choose them or someone different? Uh, 
Uh, I'll probably go for Matthias Sammer, yeah, uh, the German won. sweeper. Yeah. Um, phenomenal tournament. I think he was the only player to win two man of the matches in the whole tournament as well. And um, if you saw the Croatia quarterfinal, I mean, he virtually sorted that out on his own. Yeah, he was. Just got, kind of got so frustrated with what was ahead of him. He just thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll go, I'll go up there and sort this out, and you know, set one goal up and won the uh, scored the other. Great, great stuff. Well, that's that's you know, we've got some memories there, but that's start and, and build from the tournament. But before we do. Mike, let's just talk about the book because, uh, for, if for me, I imagine for you as well, it's Euro Night Six is a labour of love. How did the book come about, and how much do you, did you enjoy writing it from a nostalgic point of view? Um, well, the book came about. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Danish Dynamite, uh, which is about the Danish team of the nineteen eighties. Yep, and it was the I think it was the day after that um, book launch. I met some friends for a, a post euphoric drink kind of thing. And I think Britpop at the BBC had been on the night before. Mm. So sort of one of these kind of uh, 90s nostalgia programmes. Yeah. Uh, we got talking about that. And we got talking about the tournament. And, you know, I was 18 that summer when it all happened. It was, you know, that kind of, it was a great time to sort of come of age, for want of a better phrase. So, um, and just so sort of, the reason I wanted to do it was to kind of tap back into that, explore it, uh, you, you know, recapture that time and trying to, you know, present that time to people now because, you kind of see a lot of retrospectives of that era now, and some of them are quite negative about it or, you know, make out it wasn't quite as, you know, enjoyable as it was. And so, yeah, part of it was to just kind of, uh, you know, like redress the balance a little bit. So yeah. that was, um, it took a while to come together. Yeah, I mean, um, it was a real labour of love. Uh, it took about a year to write in all, sort of researching and, you know, doing the writing as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was it, basically. And I think I sort of finished it in January this year. So it's been quite a quick turnaround because... Um, Obviously, wanted to get it out for the 20th anniversary this summer. And, you know, it's kind of chimed in with, um, you know, the BBC. They did that documentary last week. They did, I don't yeah. know you guys thought. Mm. So, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of Euro 96. I think tomorrow's the, uh, I think you said earlier, didn't you? It's the uh, 20th anniversary of the start of the tournament. So, yeah, yeah and I think ITV have got a, a documentary on tonight as well. So, yeah, everyone is right. going Euro 96 men. So, obviously, the best show will be this one because we've got you guys on. Um, <laughs> I said in the intro, there was something about the summer of 96, Rich, that, I don't know, unless you lived it, and were a particular age, of course, you can't describe the feeling around the summer and the football was at the centre of it all, wasn't it? Well, it was absolutely surreal, really. I mean, you know, we'd gone from having just, you know, regular Premier League football and FA Cups having major tournaments on our doorstep in Liverpool with obviously the group games and, and so forth. And, it, you know, it was, it was weird. I mean, it was weird as well because it was probably my first Vivid memory of England at a major tournament. USA '94 was a bit, bit vague, and you know you lost interest until the final because England weren't there. But I think you're '96 because it was it was our tournament, wasn't it? It was on home soil. It was probably the best crop of players for about 20 years. It it, it just invigorated the whole nation. I thought. I mean, but it, it did eventually. At the start was a little bit ropey, obviously. You talk about the start. That's that's built then with Rog from the start. Um, it's it's been documented this week as well with the documentary, and because everyone's trying to build it, the pictures have been going around. The drunken behaviour in Hong Kong, the dentist chair. I mean, at the time, Roger, did you? Uh, how did you feel about it then, and how do you feel about it now? The build up and Terry Venable's squad and what they got up to. Well, I think I mean I was in my early twenties at the time, so I probably had a slightly different view about you know drinking pre-tournament than I do now um but <clears throat> even then it seemed slightly odd to be going all the way out to China um or, or to, to the sort of far east for 
a preparation for a tournament that was happening here in England, you know, so we were going out to somewhere where the weather wasn't the same and we weren't playing championship standard opposition. So it seemed like an odd kind of trick to go on, I think. Um, in terms of the sort of the behaviour of the players, I think at the time, like I said, you know, it was the sort of thing I was doing with my mates and it, in it well, not, not perhaps to that extent, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it fed into that sort of, atmosphere of, of the laddish culture that was going on at the time but looking back in it now um um and I don't drink as much or anything like that and I'm much fitter probably now than I was then but um you do sort of think that was really poor preparation and <clears throat> um just reading Michael's book which is excellent by the way um the, the the chapter which discusses this you do sort of read it and think you know what what were they thinking really go the preparing for a tournament and allowing some of the players to get that drunk and behave like that and it wasn't just the one-off incident with the dentist chair you know there was you, you know this i think um you know gaza almost got chucked off the flight out to china you know he, he they allowed him to get you know he was and and the, the documentary you were talking about the bbc documentary with alan Stewart you know it was all it was all now being sort of treated as a bit of a joke but it does make you wonder whether in some way that sort of behavior actually cost us in the sense that we weren't we weren't perhaps physically or even mentally ready for the for a complete tournament yeah it was very winky winky nudge nudge laugh laugh wasn't it uh, yeah exactly drinks exactly. in paul Ince's room if i remember or, or it wasn't all the bar they were saying on, on the documentary uh, mike mentioned uh, rog mentioned your book mike and you say the chapter what do you think was behind the reasons why england went so far away for a tournament that was hosted on their doorstep well i think there was three reasons really i mean one of them was um i think they were quite frightened the fa of uh, any kind of outbreak of hooliganism before the tournament started or, you know, right on the eve of the tournament. So I think only about 200 officially selected FA England fans went out to the, uh, to East Asia for those games. So that kind of removed that kind of threat of it. Um, another factor as well, I guess, is, uh, you know, there's, uh, it was to do with, uh, you know, the Premier League was being, you know, shown a lot in Asia then. There were a lot of 11.30 kickoffs in the Premier League around that time. Mm. I think, oh, they kicked off around that time, so they coincided with being shown for an Asian or so on another sort of hand, it's a chance to sell um, English football as well. And also for the both games, they got paid a lot of money as well. I think it was um, sort of a quarter of a million for the China fixture, 400,000 US dollars to play Hong Kong, I think it was, something like that. So it was that, kind of those three factors, really. But I mean, you look at the teams they, that they played. I mean, normally before a tournament, England will play, you know, someone who yeah, plays vaguely. Like, yeah. yeah, they're going to play, but... I mean, what on earth do you think you're going to learn from playing that Hong Kong team? In that black uh, kit. Yeah. Ahead of your 96. It's one of the most bizarre kind of international teams England's ever faced, I think. Yeah, it was. Well, let's look at the squad as well. I mean, the, every time an England squad is announced, as of this time, it's it's always debated. You know, here you have the Jack Walsh debate this time around. But to be honest with you, looking at the squad in 96, there wasn't really anyone you'd say. There was such a plethora of players, namely in the attacking department, that... Terry Venables had to choose from. I mean, Richard, do you think there was any qualms with the squad that was chosen? Not really, no. I think, I mean, it was a team that, well, a squad that picked itself, really. I think the, the identity of the 11 players was up for debate. As you say, the attack quality was brilliant. Um, and you look, you look back over that squad, I mean, Steve Stone isn't the most, um, I'd say, illuminating the players. But, you know, he was a Premier League mainstay. A, a lot of them were, with the exception of probably Gazza and Paul Ince. 
who obviously you know played overseas or you know out of England. Um, it was decent crop players, and even the ones who were you constitute them as being over the hill traditionally, the, the 30 and over. I think we went into the tournament with three of them. I think we had, it was Seaman at 32, Pierce 34, and Shenningham at 30. And then David Platt turned 32 after the switch runs or so. In terms of actually, you know, you look at the England squad now and you look at the players there and you're thinking, well, he's a bit over the hill. He's, 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 he's past it. Um, and then, as you say, the Wilshire debate, you, the question the selections but with the, that England squad of 96 there wasn't really any debate you know everyone got it in there I mean I'd probably I'd probably from a major perspective I'd argue Jimmy Redknapp probably shouldn't have been in there I don't think he was probably at a level where he could have competed but everyone in there on form and on experience and on what they brought to the team I think it was a very uh, selfish policy squad yeah, I think, I mean, people say about the guys of Ian Wright and Stan Collymore, but you look at the strikers that were included in that, Shearing Sherman, obviously, and Robbie Fowler and Les Ferdinand, they were such a massive pool of talent he had to choose from. And it's funny you mentioned Steve Stone. I really used to really love Steve Stone. I think I even chose him ahead of Ronaldo in my Premier League team of, of the decade or something like that, as ridiculously as that sounds. Um, but that, no, the squad, I think, you know, I think we'll all agree, was, was, was as good as, as it could have been at that time, maybe question marks, like you say, over Redknapp and his fitness. But the first game what brought us to uh, the Switzerland game. Before that, uh, you know, we had that opening ceremony that you get at tournaments with the big St. George's Dragon reenactment, Simply Red singing, we can stay in this together, or whatever the song was called. But the Switzerland game is not one really for, for that holds up the memories, is it, Roger? It was kind of a, a tough old game. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, these opening games of tournaments, it's a bit of a cliche, I suppose, but opening games of tournaments actually sometimes are. You know, they tend to have a lot of draws, don't we, in those games? And, you know, t- teams are feeling their way way in. So um, it, it wasn't a great performance, particularly in the second half. We couldn't seem to sort of work out how to, you know, how to, how to you know, get past them and, 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 and grab a winner. But as I say, you know, it's very, very rare that teams who go on to win tournaments, and I know England didn't, but it's very rare that teams who go on to win tournaments play well in every game. So, you know, um, I, I don't think we should sort of beat them up too much about it. <laughs> it was a goal from Alistair, the first in 14 games, of course, that we remember, and then a penalty that was given away by Stuart Pearce. Mike, did we underestimate the Swiss maybe slightly going into that game? Uh, possibly, yeah, because I think, well, we'd beaten them 3-1 in November of 1995, uh, which was a kind of bit of a breakthrough result for Venables because he had a lot of draws before that. The, Umbra, uh, the Umbro Cup hadn't gone very well in the summer of 95 either. Um, so to beat Switzerland 3-1, I mean, that might not sound much now, but I mean, they were the first team that qualified for Euro 96 uh, from the qualifiers. And they'd had a reasonably good World Cup at USA 94 yeah. as well, you know, which, um, you know, obviously England weren't at. So um, there's maybe a little bit of uh, that kind of 3-1 in their minds, you know, that they were just going uh, to go out and do it. But um, I think the main problem was they just completely flatlined in that second half. Yeah, yeah. They I did. mean, their, their legs just went completely, which everyone obviously then equated back to, you know, the pre-tournament jolly in Hong Kong, had they taken their preparation seriously enough and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Was, this when, was this when Switzerland were third, third in the FIFA rankings, or was that a little bit earlier? Because they, they were... Sorry, carry on. I think they kind of yeah I think they kind of ascended to third at some point at some point between USA '94 and Euro '96. Yeah, so they, they weren't you know, they weren't a terrible team, you no. know, no, <laughs> by no, any no. stretch of the imagination, sort of thing. 
I think you're right, Roger's right as well. Opening games are always pretty sort of cagey affairs, aren't they? They're never really sort of if they're not draws, they're usually sort of one nil wins or things like that. So no... you, don't, you don't want to lose your first game. Yeah. If you lose your first game, it's a massive uphill struggle. If you draw your first game, then you know it, it's a good foundation, isn't it? Sort of thing. Yeah, Rich, what are your memories from from that opening game of Euro '96, other than Mick Hucknall singing at the beginning of it? <laughs> Well, I don't remember Mick um official song. To be honest, I was, I was actually surprised to find out that that was actually the official song. I always, for past few decades, thought it was three hours. I thought that was, you know, the designated England one. Because yeah, obviously the they had song, the, yeah, the tie-in with, you know, Bishop Abbey and, and everything else. And you thought, well, no, this has got to be the official song. Yeah. It didn't, I mean, it's like when, um, like the 98 one, where they had um, Ian McCork and a load of has-beens doing a cover version. That was the sort of the England's offering that year when... Everyone was harking back to Vindaloo and, and free lines. But in terms of the Switzerland game, um, I, I think we were all a bit confident, weren't we? And once the Euro scored, we thought, here we go, this is where it, it starts to get lively and where we start to, to march on. And then um, Stuart Buddy Pierce, I mean, I, I know you redeemed yourself late in the tournament, but you know, I, I do wonder about that. what ha- would have happened if we had had an absolutely flawless um, qualification record from the group. Would, we have, you know, would it have been an easier path to the final? Would we have been where the Czech Republic where you know, you everything goes through your head and you do wonder what ifs. Um but I mean it was that moment where we thought uh, it's gonna be another typical England tournament this, it's all gonna go belly up again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so which brought us to, to the next game of, of that group, which was Group A um, against Scotland. Uh, much was made, of course, of this in the build-up, as the papers did, you know, the Battle of Britain. And for the first half, you could say that Scotland possibly shaded it, but it wasn't. It was another okay, kind of followed on from the Switzerland game. And then the famous substitution, Mike. I mean, how did that substitution of Jamie Redknapp at half-time change the second game for England? Well, it gave them a bit more wits, I think, um, and and so it sort of pushed Anderton wide, and it really brought uh, Steve McManaman into the game. He was just um, kind of shunted out onto the left, really, as a kind of England hadn't had an actually left-sided player to fill that role since sort of Barnes and Waddle had kind of uh, left the scene. And McManaman was kind of filling in there, and always having to cut back, but um, kind of in tandem with Redknapp, um, it just it just seemed to open it up completely, and McManaman. He, dominated that opening uh, 15 minutes of the second half um I, well, you know i've watched the, the game back a few times just picks it up runs at them you know really pivotal involvement in the first goal for shearer uh sort of short pass from redknapp draws the defense in which opens the space on the right and then neville crosses it in and then shearer scores that made it one nil and then as we mentioned earlier in the show the 60 seconds of madness later in the game Starting with McAllister's penalty miss, which you know was famously caused by Yuri Geller in the sky, um, moving the football, and then down the other end, one of the greatest not just England goals but probably tournament goals of all time. We've heard you know Mike mention it. What, what do you remember about those sixty seconds, Rich? Well, I mean, I think uh, we've obviously all seen the documentary, and Seaman actually mentioned about you can see the balls starting to turn as McAllister about to step and take it. Um, so you can see McAllister's stance changes. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant save by Seaman, and then you know it is the classic defence into attack. Um, but that, I mean, the movement was unbelievable from Gaz. I mean, you know, everyone talked about he was past it. He was, you know, I can't remember what what, what a certain newspaper called him. I think he was an oak with no pride. Um, <laughs> but he proved them wrong, didn't he? As he's, as he's have a lot of people in the past, but um, it was just brilliant. I mean, it was, you know, he, he he still references it with Colin Hendry about you've been been in my pocket for twenty years. 
you know, it was unbelievable. It was it's one of those goals that you can watch it a hundred times over and you'll never be able to articulate how brilliant it is, no matter how many times you try. It's one of those goals that you ne- it's just unbelievable. I don't think I could probably do it justice, to be honest. No, nah, it's once in a lifetime, isn't it, Roger? And I think only Paul Gascoigne could have scored that goal, couldn't he? Yeah, I think of that certainly, yeah, of that team. Um it was uh, it was spectacular stuff and it did it did sort of change the mood of, of around England. Suddenly that pre-tournament all the pre-tournament issues became kind of like about team bonding they weren't they weren't bad things all of a sudden and it was all sort of I think the attitude towards the England team turned with that goal and that that 60 seconds rather that because I think had Scotland scored the penalty um, we might have been looking at a very different result yeah uh, yeah as Mike said it kind of flipped the tournament on itself didn't it just that moment in in itself which led then to, to what was meant to be the hardest game in the group for England against a very talented, very talented Dutch team with the likes of, you know, Bergkamp, Van der Sar and Davids and all that lot. But what happened that night, Mike? I mean, it's one of those England performances they talk about for years and years. They compare it to 66. It was one of those nights where everything just seemed to come together, wasn't it? Oh, it was absolutely incredible, yeah. I mean, um, I think going into the tournament, the Dutch were second favourites just behind Germany going into the tournament. Um, They'd absolutely eviscerated the Republic of Ireland. Um, in the playoff for the final qualification place at Anfield, with the, just this kind of performance of uh, sort of total football, you know, the '90s version kind of thing, um, and, uh, and the bulk of uh, the team, about half of them, I think, they played for Ajax back-to-back European Cups. They'd won the, you know, the European Cup in 1995. So the Dutch had this kind of terrifying kind of aura about them going into the tournament, and I think. You can only really understand how surreal it was to go from one to four nil in that second half if you watched how far England had slid from Italia ninety, you know, under Graham Taylor missing the World Cup, that kind of trawl of friendlies uh, with Venables, a lot of them ended up in draws. Um, so to to be four nil up after an hour against uh, Holland it was just it was just like, I was pinching myself. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't quite believe it was happening. It was, um, and you could you can even see it on the play. Faces when they're celebrating the goals. I think when the fourth one goes in, there's a look between uh, Shearer and Gascon. Like, can you believe this <laughs> kind of thing? Which is, you know, how everyone in the country felt. I think because going into it, I think a, a draw would have put both sides through. So that was that. That was the the main benefit of um, you know winning that Scotland game was it took that pressure off the final game, or it took a lot of the pressure off anyway. And I think that contributed. Sorry about that. I think that contributed a lot. Uh, to you know the way England played that night. Yeah, Rich. I think you did. You have you mentioned it on the pod before? I think the England Holland game you mentioned being one of your games of the, of the decade. I mean, it's just as Mike said, it's unbelievable. But I remember watching it at home as, as a young boy and, and watching every goal fly in. He didn't see England play like that, and it's the night that Sheeran Shangham really clicked. What are your big memories of that game? Yeah, I've mentioned it once or twice on the podcast. I think it's. Um... It's still there as one of my top three games of all time. I mean, I think someone, when England played Holland recently, wrote a piece reflecting on it and said it was the night that England played like Holland and Holland had no answer. And I think that's probably the best way to articulate it. I mean, it was an unbelievable all-round team performance. Probably the most complete you'll probably see in the decade, maybe in 20 years, and in major international tournaments. And as we've as we said already, it wasn't a bad Holland side. You know, Brinkle's hitting a good manager, as he's proved in the decade since. Um you know, you had Dennis Bergkamp who was in his infantry at Arsenal. We had Van der Sar. It was just a brilliant team. But you look at the, the England side that went out that night, and in particular the goal we referenced earlier, the 
they went Manamin Gaza, Shenigan, Shearer one. I mean, it was it was the icing on the cake. It was probably no one could have expected that. And you look at back at the scenes from Wembley, and you know, there's all people in all different team shirts, Tottenham, Liverpool, Man United, some of the national ones, and they're all singing footballs coming home at the end of it. I mean, that was probably as far as you can frame a moment of the tournament. That was probably the perfect one for England. Yeah, perfect moment, absolutely. Roger, at that point, did you start believing England could win it? I, I definitely did. I mean, as I said at the, at the start, that goal with um, that third goal, did, it was such a beautifully crafted goal that you did think, well, actually, you know, maybe maybe we can win this. But I think it's worth stating that, you know, in that first half, we, we it was 1-0 at half-time only, and the goal had come from a penalty. Um and if you look back at the commentary, you know, the commentator, I can't remember who it is, is saying, you know, England could do with half-time coming now. So, you know, the Dutch actually over the course of the game had more possession, more shots, more corners. So they gave us a good game. It wasn't as if, it, I think the scoreline perhaps um, and, and time has made us forget that actually it was a far more um, equally balanced game than um, the, the scoreline suggests. But... Even so, it was a, a, a spectacular performance from England, and particularly that seven-minute spell. I think it was where they scored the three second-half goals. It was just, it was just incredible, and it, you know, it it, it 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 added to the sense that had been building from from Gaza's goal against Scotland. The the goal that they conceded, of course, famously eliminated Scotland. Mike, I mean, is that harsh on Scotland? Who I think gave a decent account on themselves in the tournament in the group. Uh, they did, yeah. I mean, it, it it was rough on them. I think for about 16 minutes, they were in the knockout stages of a major tournament for the first time. Uh, and then obviously, Kluivert scores and it, it gets pulled away from them. But um, in the, the Switzerland game, which was going on at the same time, I mean, they missed a load of chances, Scotland. I mean, the, that's really what they should kick themselves about. Uh, McCoyst in particular, I mean, he scored a great goal in the first half, but he missed two kind of, you know, relatively relatively easy chances by his standards. Um and, you know, I think it was always a long shot for Scotland because you, you couldn't have expected England to, I don't think beforehand, to go that far in front of the Dutch. So it was, all, it was always, um, I think um, Gary McAllister said beforehand, well, if they can win 2-0, hopefully we can win 3-0, uh, which would have put the Scots through. So, um, yeah, the fact, I mean, it nearly made it a 1-0. I mean, it, it's heartbreaking for them. But, um, you know, they, they do have that kind of one. It's, it's another one that goes in the final yeah. of the... You know, Holland in 78 and everything. Yeah, no, bad luck for Scotland. Although they had a great kit for that tournament. The the Tartan uh, home kit, I remember quite vividly, being one of the best kits of the tournament. Although the England kit, the, the home kit was a great one as well. Although less said about the away kit, the better. <laughs> um, before we move on to talk about the other groups, Rich, I mean, you mentioned the song Three Lions earlier. I mean, we did we talked quite detail about Three Lions in our music pod earlier in the season. How big, though, did that song kind of roll into that summer? You mentioned them singing it at the end of the Holland game. It really just become an anthem, and that summer is summed up by just hearing those notes of football coming home, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all those, I don't think, in the annals of football songs, you know, we had, all, obviously, the cup final effort, and you used to have the occasional ones. I think England did one in, I think it was 82 or 86. We did a couple, Um but this was something different. This was almost like it's been kind of brought into the into the uh, the consciousness of Britpop. Obviously, you had Ian Brody writing it. You had um, Skinner and Badil providing the backing and providing the words, and you know it, it brought everything together. It brought in you know iconic British music at the time with with what is still iconic British humour from from that era. And the way it washed over everyone, I think you know everyone knew. I mean, even my mum 
new <laughs> from by the end of the summer. Um, I mean, if, if England had got to the final, I, I have no doubt in my mind it would have probably been number one for a couple of weeks. Uh, but as soon as England went out, it dropped off the top. But it was just one of those songs that, even, I mean, I listened to it before, and it's one of those songs that even when you listen to it now, it just conjures up the memories of, you know, the, um, the Barmy evening against Holland, the Gaza against Scotland, and, you know, even to a less degree, the, uh, the hearty against Germany. Yeah. We did a poll actually earlier the week on, on the Twitter because we were discussing this at the weekend what the better song was between Three Lions and, and World in Motion, which I'm a massive fan of as well. And of the sort of 200 odd votes we got, 59% said Three Lions. Roger, would you agree Three Lions over World in Motion? Oh, I don't know. Hard, isn't it? I, 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 personally, I, prefer, I think I prefer um, as a song um, uh, World in Motion, but I think that Three Lions is more iconic because it was part of. Um, that summer and this is why I don't buy this. there seems to be an attempt to, to, to amongst I've, I've read a few articles recently that are sort of fairly revisionist that actually it wasn't such a great tournament and England didn't play so well <clears throat> and that might be true but what this tournament was was it was part of something much bigger this sort of cultural event that was going on where we had Britpop we had artists like Damon Hurst, we had films like Train Spotting, um, Lads Mags were, were becoming a big thing. All of this stuff, you know, we had um, Cool Britannia with Vanity Fair doing articles about Britain at that time with um, Patsy Kensett and uh, Liam Gallagher on the front in bed with their um, Union Jack bedspread, you know, or their Union Jack duvet. And that song and this tournament was part of all of that. So I think whether or not the football was great and whether or not England actually weren't perhaps quite as good as we remember, it was all very iconic because it was part of something much bigger. Yeah, totally agree. And, and Mike, I mean, your, your book is obviously <laughs> When Football Came Home is, is based on sort of the Free Lions. How big a deal do you think Free Lions played in just the momentum of that tournament? Well, I think the first time I think it got played was after England beat Scotland. So it was that kind of... You know, the relief of winning that game and they put that on at the final whistle and it kind of, and I think Badu and Skinner said on that their, their documentary, they didn't realise up until that point how many people, you know, had actually bought it, knew the words. Um, and the players really got into it as well. Like Gaza would play it at six o'clock every morning at full volume and, you know, <laughs> and, and wake all the players up. They used to sing it on the coach um, on the way to the uh, games. And I think the further England went in the tournament, the bigger the kind of song became as well. It actually ended up selling more copies than Wonderwall, which, I mean, I'm sure everyone from that era can remember how ubiquitous uh, Wonderwall was yeah. um, in that kind of year as well. And it's, I think it's something like the 25th biggest selling British single of all time. Good fact. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, yeah, it was an absolute um, phenomenon. And just, um, to, just to go back to the World in Motion thing, I do actually think it's a better song than World in Motion because, I mean, you know, I'll say this to someone from Manchester as well, uh, <laughs> World in Motion is, you know, it's something from sort of Bernard Sumner's sock drawer, really. And the, the lyrics are, you know, beat the man, take him on, <laughs> don't give up, it's one on what that kind of thing. Whereas I think Three Lines is the first football record that actually sort of made an attempt to say something about the game and what it means to them. And I think that's another reason why, you know, that record still means a lot to people, as well as, you know, all of the tie-ins it has with, you know, evoking memories of that summer. Yes, and on that note, which was a lovely segue that I was planning there, um, today's guest on the phone as well was heavily involved in all of the Free Lions, Fancy Football. He is a broadcaster and 
commentator in, in these days, but back in the 90s, we used to know him as Stato, Stato, Stato. Here's me speaking earlier this week to Angus Longren. Angus Longren, welcome to Live in the Kick-In. Thank you for joining us. Um, before we talk about Euro 96 and, and your famous role on, on fantasy football, let's, let's talk how you got involved in the show. How did you get involved in Fantasy Football League? Because uh, you were a respected journalist at the time, so uh, how did that come about? I met the uh, series producer, who's actually uh, now works on TalkSport, Andy Jacobs, uh, and a, a soccer match, uh, Tottenham and Chelsea, because he's a big Chelsea fan. And they said he said he had this idea, would I be interested? And uh, met up with Frank and David, was used us as a pilot really to start with. They had another idea. It was someone called the Insider. Uh, so they they went with him, and uh, it didn't quite work as they'd hoped so they decided to uh, work with me on what we decided so, so that was how it worked it was good and how did the character stato come about well it was just sort of frank and david they were messing about with names and it sort of it stuck and you know that's it it was one of those ones where it seemed to work and you know that that was it really and was it their idea for you to wear the dressing gown and, and things yeah like that? i think so yeah i mean it, it all worked out well it was one of those things at the time that you was hit and miss, but it seemed to have stuck and been very popular. Mm. Well, let's talk Euro 96 then, because that's what we're talking about this week on this show. Uh, what are your best memories, first of all, from, you know, we all, those who lived through that and, and were old enough to kind of remember that tournament, really cherished that summer. But what are your best memories from it? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it was a fabulous tournament, wasn't it? I mean, 16 teams, eight venues, Alan Shearer being top goal scorer. <laughs> I think it was 64 goals scored in total in the whole thing. It was a, it was a, it was an amazing event, really. I mean, I was lucky enough. Uh, I was I had a nice role, really, because we did the fantasy football. I went to a few games. I commentated on a few games. Uh, I commentated for Eurosport on England, Spain. That was uh, uh, perhaps uh, one of the uh, highlights of my broadcasting career so far, really. Be, uh, seeing England winning a penalty shootout, and uh, I did it at Wembley with Ray Clements. I must admit, I thought I was all set to go for. Uh, to Anfield that night for Holland-France which was a game I would have actually liked to have seen but uh, I had I was second choice commentator and uh, they, uh, Eurosport had the France-Holland uh, live and had England uh, against Spain which went out straight after the game so uh, uh, the uh, first choice commentator was Archie McPherson at the time and he chose Holland-France I must admit I was quite surprised I would have probably chosen uh, uh, England if I'd, if I'd had the choice and uh, so I went to Wembley and uh, actually we had a good viewing figure because uh, obviously with England winning, everyone wants to watch it later and primetime highlights was a good time for it to be on. Mm, good, good game, good game. And you mentioned obviously you did the show to fantasy football. Um, you were privy yeah. to how massive Three Lions, of course, became with Padil and Skinner. Behind the scenes, yeah, were, they, were they surprised how massive that song became? I don't think they were surprised how massive it became once they realised that the show was so popular. I think the two things went together. And, I mean, you know, it, it really hinged on England, really. I mean, you know, th- that song would have been even bigger had England won the uh, Euro 96. And let's face it, they should have won the tournament. It was theirs for the winning. Uh, you have to, the only thing I will say is that, looking back on it, uh, you've got to give Germany immense credit for uh, winning that semi-final because they had a lot of problems that night, the Germans. I mean, uh, if if you remember, they had injury problems the whole way through, uh, and you know England had a perfect start with Shearer's header. I think it was just three minutes into the match, and uh, you know getting as far as 
75 minutes before Stefan Kuntz got the equaliser. Uh, it took us into extra time. And I mean, you, I still remember Gaza. He had that really magnificent chance. It, yeah. would, it would have been the golden goal, or the silver goal, as they, they, they called it at the time. Uh, remember, the first goal would have won it, uh, as we saw in the uh, the final with Oliver Beerhoff. So, uh, uh, you know, I think Anderson hit a post. Uh, uh, the Germans had a chance to win it themselves. I think they, I think uh, Kuntz was penalised for a bit of pushing, uh, but no, no, no one could get that second goal. And then, uh, uh, you know, after the uh, penalty miss of Southgate, it was uh, Andreas Moller who uh, stepped up and finished it off. And uh, I commentated on the game for the Africans at, at Canal France International that night. And uh, I remember uh, distinctly getting calls later from people who had been on a kibbutz and been huddling around the radio. I was aware that it, it's not like now with HDTV, uh, you know, a lot of it was poor quality pictures. So I was aware that that went, I would have had a lot of expats for that night. Uh, the, the quarterfinal I'd done for Eurosport, that was a different audience completely. Uh, I mean, the other England games, I went to uh, England, Switzerland. Funny enough, I went to England, Switzerland with Chris Evans, and uh, we, we, we did a podcast with Graham Lasso. I think that must have been one of the first... Uh, podcast done so uh, you know I've got lots of happy memories and we were doing the show as well so you know when you have a, when you have a look at uh, how it all went it, it it was fantastic wasn't it very very much was you were obviously well known on Fancy Football League for having guests as well do you, do you have favourite guests you can remember from the show yeah I think, I think a lot of it was quite I mean you know I remember Basil Brush being hilarious and uh, <laughs> uh, it, 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 that stands out obviously uh there were a lot of there were a lot of good guests on the show, and I I wouldn't like to name one individually to be quite honest because uh, uh, you know I think the, the the balance of guests were were great, you know the likes of Bob Mortimer who knew his football. There were, there were there were lots of funny people, and there were lots of people you wouldn't really. So Joe Brand was was very good fun. Were, most of most of people on the show were excellent. Uh, I think that's where it. it, it it wasn't by accident they had the uh, 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 the guests they did. It was well researched, and you know, like Paul uh, Hawksby and Andy Jacobs, who were the series producers, and you know, Andy Jacobs in particular did, a, did an outstanding job producing that show. He really, he really put his heart and soul into it. And how often do you still get chanted "Stato, Stato, Stato" at you in the street? Is it something that still happens to you? Oh, uh, it, it, it comes a lot when people have had a drink. Uh, <laughs> I noticed more. The last time it really got out of control was probably late at night uh, after the cup final. Uh, I was heading back into Victoria, and uh, a whole load of Crystal Palace fans uh, uh, eyed me up, and then uh, we had a good bit of sport with them at Victoria Station. It was it was quite entertaining. Uh, you know they were all in uh, jovial mood but it's definitely an alcohol recognition factor <laughs> it must be a, a generation thing as well I was going to ask do you think there's a place for a show obviously it was very much in the culture of fancy football league of that era of of the mid 90s but do you think there's a place for something like that I know Sky do a semi-similar version of it at the moment but do you think the show could come back even for a nostalgic value well, you could do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the reason it was a good time to call it a day because they'd run out of footage really uh, run out of the old footage. We've done most of the, what we wanted to do. Uh, I think obviously now you, you, there's so many different television companies covering the covering the game. I mean, in those days we, we were quite restricted to what we could have. 
But, uh, I mean, you know, I, I quite enjoyed finding a lot of the funny clips from around the world. And I think, obviously, there's been enough time to uh, milk more of that now. And, uh, yeah, very, uh, I mean, very much so. But I don't think they were wrong to stop when they did, simply because uh, you don't want something like getting stale, and it can get stale very quickly. Brilliant. Well, great to look back on, on the show and those memories of United States. Thank you very much, Angus. No problem. And, and, and enjoy your 216 as much. I mean, uh, well, let's hope England do as well. That's indeed. Thank you very much. Great memories there from Angus and, of course, Stato. Brilliant. Love that show. It's time to bring Fantasy Football League back to our screens. Whoever's listening out there, we want it back on our TV. Um, We've talked a lot about England and, obviously, what happened to Scotland in Group A, but let's just take a brief look at the other groups before we uh, finish part one of this double header of our Euro 96 extravaganza podcast this week. Um, Group B was France, Spain, Bulgaria and Romania. And, and Rich, this group, I mean, Bulgaria and Romania were really fancied off the back of USA 94 and, you know, the likes of Hadji and Stoichkov. But actually, it was the other two teams that, that took hold of this group uh, in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I think it kind of falls on the whole cost of payment. I, did, I mean, I say those two nations have a great run at USA 94, but, you know, one one player doesn't make a team, does he? You can't really carry a whole nation um, on your shoulders, so to speak. So I think it, was, it wasn't really much of a surprise that those two won through. I mean... Spain were probably not quite at the powerhouse that they became in the decade after, but they were still, you know, a team who could make up the numbers and could, you know, hold their own in the knockout stages. And as it proved, they, they got to the first head on and then. Unfortunately, didn't get any further thanks to uh, good old England. Yeah, which we will talk about in detail tomorrow. But yeah, that that group was yeah. I mean, the France team there was you know bubbling under. We're only two years away from the great team that won in '98, and I think you know, they were just before maturing I think to, to in that group but they did win that group uh, group C was Germany Czech Republic Italy and Russia and, and Mike this was the group uh, where Italy kind of fell with eggs on their faces and we really saw this new footballing side of the Czech Republic um, come to the forefront didn't we yeah for Italy it was just sort of this sort of hubristic nightmare really I mean they beat Russia 2-1 in the opening game and then sort of inexplicably made five changes to that team, including the two forwards, um, you know, including Kazaragi, who scored both goals. Um, so they went into that kind of Friday night game against the Czechs, you know, really kind of, uh, you know, hyper-confident the Czechs had lost the first game. They'd folded pretty meekly to Germany, and they were just kind of expected to be, you know, make weights in the group for a week and then, you know, sort of be sent on their way soon after. Um, and I think that kind of Friday, so that was the Friday night before... Uh, the England Scotland game on yeah. the Saturday, and it it did a a lot, I think, to kind of um, kickstart the tournament because it was the f- tournament's first real upset. Um, so I think yeah, the Czechs went one up after four minutes, and uh, there was an equaliser. Apollon got sent off, and then um, Babel scored the sort of winner a bit later on. But it also uh, the first kind of glimpse we had of Carol Paborski in that tournament, who yes. was absolutely you know, people might only remember him, you know. Later on, from you know not being very successful at Manchester United, but he's absolutely phenomenal in that tournament. And he tore Paolo Maldini to pieces, which isn't an easy thing. Uh, no, it isn't an easy thing at all. And uh, to see a kind of you know one of the greatest players well, ever basically you know be ripped apart like that, and the, and then you thought, well, is that a one-off? Or you know, or can the Czechs actually go on and do something here? Yeah, it was a great team, and and that group. I had the Germany as well and I think from early on you could see you know Germany kind of didn't walk it but they were pretty confident in that group the draw the 0-0 draw at the end of that group between Italy and Germany 
ultimately meant Italy knocked out uh, at Old Trafford. I remember Dre Franco Zola on the floor with his heads in his hands. But ultimately, it was the firepower of Italy that didn't quite get them through. The likes of Cataraghi and Zola couldn't quite get the goals. And they went home at that early stage. And then the final group, um, I'm left this to Roger because he mentioned that beautiful name of Davos Suka earlier on, um, which was Group D. And that was Portugal, Croatia, Denmark and Turkey. In that order, that's why it finished with Portugal top, Croatia surprisingly second. Um, but, it, you know, the, the, champ, the former champions from 1992, the surprise champions in Denmark, didn't make it to the knockout stage. And you mentioned it earlier, Rog, that chip over PH Markle from Davos Suka. I mean, that's one of the iconic moments of Euro 96, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was that game that <clears throat> pushed them through, wasn't it? Because they beat Turkey in the first um, game. Croatia had beaten Turkey in the first game 1-0. So it was that performance against Denmark that sort of uh, secured them qualification. Um, and had they, I think if they'd gone on to beach Portugal... Um, Denmark could still have qualified actually so it didn't it, it wasn't the sort of ham, it wasn't the nail in the coffin for Denmark that result but it did seem like a, a kind of you know we talked earlier about Bulgaria and Romania it was almost like a tournament too far for them whereas this was like the you know you know Croatia were just warming up a bit like France was just warming up for sort of um, um, the World Cup in, in, in two years time in, in France 98. Yeah, I mean, look at that Croatia team. I mean, it's of that era, you know, Bilic, Simic, Jani, Prozaneski, Suka, Boban. That was some team, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was it was their first, I think I'm right in thinking it was their first yeah. international tournament since they'd become a country, effectively. So it was a, you know, a huge thing for them as a country, just like when um, Ivanisevic won Wimbledon. You know, it was a, a massive thing for them as a country to perform that well on on an international stage. Although, of course, they won their first two games and then lost their second two. So, you know, it, it, it was a sort of tournament of two halves for them, but it, it was a precursor to what they would be able to achieve yeah. Um, later on. Yeah, and that Portugal team, that was no sort of, no no mugs either. Paulo Sousa, Luis Figo, Joel Pinto, Victor Bayer. I mean, that was a great team who topped the group there. Uh, we're going to end on that note of the group stage. We are going to continue talking Euro 96 tomorrow night uh, as we walk into the knockout stages before we go um wanted to get your brief memories on the knockout stages as well because we'd like to get yours firstly mike i mean the big moments we've said already but as a whole how did you think do you think it really progressed the knockout stages where the real highlights of the tournament happened um i think so yeah i mean it was the first sort of knockout stages of a tournament we played under the golden goal rule yes so i think that was that kind of over you know that it was kind of hanging over a lot of the games uh, a lot of the games went to extra time and I think there's just a sense of like the teams hadn't quite worked out how to how to play it. I mean, ultimately, as I think it was binned after about six years as a as a kind of experiment. But um, yeah, you could see it in the England Spain game particularly. I think both teams were terrified of uh, you know conceding a goal. It was you know just horrifically tense that afternoon uh, sitting through that. And so I think five of the games went to extra time. And it, it, the tournament didn't actually get a golden goal until you know the actual final. So, um, as an experiment, I think the Euro '96 was unlucky that it was, you know, the first tournament yeah. to to have to try that out. And it's, it's something it's often derided for, but I think you have to kind of remember it with the caveat that, you know, no one had really not well, not in international football anyway, played under those kind of conditions before. Mm. And Rich, I mean, I know you're a huge fan of Euro '96, and you put some great mementos on on Twitter earlier on. I mean, what are your main memories from from the knockout stage? Is it, is it Gaza and that almost moment at Wembley? Well, funny enough, I, that's probably one of the, the few memories I actually have of the semi-final. Um, because obviously it was on the school night, I was kind of banished after um, 
normal time. So the only bit I got to see really was uh, was the, the highlights on news at ten. I think it was the next night, whatever it was. Um, would get the Gaza miss. Um, but I actually finally got around to seeing the penalties on this documentary, and you've got to say, some of the penalties are remarkable. I mean, yeah. Seaman said he couldn't get to them because he would put them on the inside of the post. And yeah, I mean, England's penalties were pretty good that night, but um, the Germans, it was remarkable. You can sort of see why their records and reputation precede them, really. Yeah, great penalties. We'll talk about them tomorrow as well. Roger, leave the last word to you then. I mean, what are your everlasting memories of that glorious summer of 1996? Um... Oh, just, I think for me, I actually flew out of the country the day after we beat Holland and I went to Greece and um, their former prime minister, Andreas Papandreou, died and there was three days of national mourning, which meant that we we almost weren't able to watch the Spain game because there was literally nothing else on television apart from memories of this guy. Um, So I had sort of a slightly odd um, um, knockout experience, as it were, but um, so my memories are more connected to, to sort of the, um, the time when I was in England for the tournament and particularly the Scotland game and the, and the Holland game as well. I mean, they were just, they summed up that summer for me, I think. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, guys, for that look back. Um, thank you, firstly, to Mike. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for joining us. Please do check out his book. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Rich, as always, thank you very much, sir. I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. And to Rog, thank you again, you smug Leicester man. Uh, Enjoy your summer of title winning glory. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. And to everyone else, thank you for listening. I've been Ash Rose. Until next time, keep it Euro 96.